Coming up, Ed Solomon joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hi, everyone. It's Ileana Douglas. Welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Tamara Bird. Hi, everybody. And uh, very excited about the show today. In our, uh, we are uh, rounding out our salute to writers. Yes. Uh, I love saluting writers. Literally. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't get much, uh, you know, cred. We, you know, yeah. they, we, well, they, I mean, they the backgrounds. sometimes, you know, they sometimes do. Actors, it's not like somebody goes, actors, that's a well-written movie. Actors appreciate writers. Yes, I get it. But some of and these, are vociferous about it. But like some, of, some of these films, you know, that, uh, like I, I just watched uh, The Florida Project last night. Yeah. We're going to have them on as guests. So. Right. Chris Burke, Burke, yes. Burke? Coming up in the, I'll Burgett. let you. Burgick. Yes. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. B E R G. He'll tell us O-C-H. when when he's on the he's on the show. Yeah. But you know, again, it's you 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 would think that a movie like The Florida Project is improved, and it's not. It's scripted. See, and uh, so it's you know de- dealing you know with that and that with some people that did improv, some people that were professionals, not professionals. Fascinating story actually behind the making of the Florida Project. It was really exciting to uh, talk to him about it. Don't and, tell it now. Well, I'm not gonna. On. He'll be on. He'll be on here t- talking about well, it. And speaking, we just are going to have Michael McKean coming up soon on the show. Yes, right? Michael McKean. T- speaking of improv, yes, and writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so we had, and then we just missed. I keep plugging him, Stephen Rogers, who wrote *I Tanya*, another great script. Right. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know. Allison Janney's winning all these awards, but you know, you don't win awards without a good script. That's right. So, and and that's an interesting, intricate script too that goes back and forth. *I Tanya*, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these different. Uh, Genre, you know, different types of scripts and genres. I love learning how to, you know, learning how to write. I often say, like, if if that, I think that would have been my favorite, my um, my go to profession is being a writer, like J.D. Salinger. Really? Yeah, would have just, like a novelist. Do you mean or, or any kind of writing? I, I like I like the idea just of writing every day. I find it to be really peaceful. I was, you know, there was an interesting movie that totally went by the wayside uh, called Rebel in the Rye about J.D. Salinger. Right. Someone was just talking to us about it. And I, I can't yeah, but it, it's, and I feel bad. The director's uh, Danny Strong, producer Bruce Cohen. Oh, Danny and, Strong, right. And uh, I felt bad because, again, it's, you got to look for this, these movies, um, but very, very interesting about the process that of uh, J.D. Salinger writing uh, Catcher in the Rye. And at one point, his teacher, uh, played by Kevin Spacey in the, in the film, says, you know, you have to be able to, you want, you would have to, would you want to write even if you never got published? And I, that just, that line really stuck with me. Yeah. Because I know that my, the process of writing the book, mm-hmm. I was so happy and fulfilled. It felt like a being, I don't know, just a, a culmination of, of something. 
and it felt very gratifying, even if I, you know, never wrote another book, which is not going to happen. You I are am, writing write another book. Books. But I thought, you know what? I'm like very, I, I felt uh, a, a real, as if I'd really achieved something by writing a book. And I don't know why that, I felt that way more than um, writing, you know, do, being a part of a film or a web right. series or... All the other accolades I've uh, many, been a part many, of. many accomplishments <laughs> that you have. I yes. mean, I think I find that really interesting because I also am a creative person. I do a lot of, you know, yes. I make things, um, but I am super attached to the result. I am not mm. the like you are in oh. like loving the process. Yes, you gotta it's, love for the process. Me, it's all about like when is this dress going to be done so I can wear it? When is this cake going to be done so I can eat it? When is this piece of jewelry going to be done so I can wear it? Kind of thing. And um, and it's not that I don't enjoy the process, but and I know. See, I envy someone like you and and the other people who I think are probably on a better path than I am. Right. <laughs> who who are about you know going through the process and appreciating it and experiencing it. I get way too attached to the result, and it's, mm-hmm. I, it's I think it's terrible. Too- really, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, unless just, the result is fantastic. Well, yeah, it's just not, it's not as healthy, I think, emo- mm-hmm. you know, for one's psyche um, to to go at it the way I do. I think it's much more healthy to do it the way you do, to just like be in it. And, and I think it's, and, and also I think the process of creativity is probably um, easier and, and maybe kinder mm-hmm. to, you know, people who are, you know, in it for the process. And maybe I'm just, you know, criticizing to myself too much, but because obviously I do it because I like it. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, you know, do you, you, you don't find yourself coming to the, I've got to get to page 300 or X, Y, and Z. Do you know, I find the opposite thing there, you know, there was a famous like showbiz story about Al Pacino working on this film for, you know, 25 years or something, you know, tinkering with it, right. screening it for people, bringing right. it back, you know, redo. And I, I feel that way with uh, something that I'm working on now, like uh, this inability to let it go. I'm always like, hi, hey, let me it go back to that a little scene. Bit and I keep, and sometimes I have to, you know, you have to worry about, you could undermine something that actually worked, but I think about, I'll see an idea or be inspired by something and I go back and I'm, I, I, what I'm always trying to do, I guess, is just tell a good story and make it as believable um, as possible. So do you uh, keep older drafts? I do, I do, and I do go back sometimes and check it. Uh, but I, luckily for me, I have a pretty good memory, so mm. I'll I'll try to jam in. I mean, my worst thing is that I tried it, but at least I know it is I try to jam in jokes because I oh, just sure. I love jokes, yeah. and I'm always told like, why are you giving this person person so much real estate? And I go because it's, it's funny, because it's funny, it's clever, and, right. you know. But that was always my problem, even you know, like in acting school, I was always trying to be funny or yeah, clever, yeah. as I still am. Yes, I guess. you are. I guess yes, you are. And have you been watching any of the award shows? So I, I missed them. I missed um, the SAG Awards this week. I yeah, I don't even know if I've recorded it because shows. I've got way too much going on right now. Yeah. Um. So I, so I did not see that one, but I mm-hmm. saw the Golden Globes and. You know, I'm looking for. I enjoy them. I really do. Yeah. You know, well, you were ta- I know they're to a certain degree 
but you know well you don't really know there's always like this i mean i i vote in the academy and it's you know supposedly top secret and uh but uh and oh and what's this thing about price waterhouse right so right i found out that they've unveiled a series of changes for the academy it was the price waterhouse is the accounting company who counts the ballots for the oscars so they don't want to have another (laughs) moonlight la la land happen why not that um, was so exciting it was well they said a third so let's see. Um, he, the the chairman and senior partner of Price Waterhouse Cooper will be personally involved in the Oscar operations this you year. Bet. Also, um, bet. there is going to be a person who will have the complete set of winners' envelopes and commit the winners to memory. So you can't you can't get the wrong. Yeah, you know, I love it. Um, what if he got kidnapped? Here, let me pitch a story. No, right, exactly. So yeah, so uh, you <laughs> Tommy know, Wiseau, like you said, it was incredibly exciting when that happened, and that's why live events are so cool to watch, right? Well, here's the thing about the academies, in my humble opinion. First of all, my grandfather won two of them. He used to he he had them both in a closet, (laughs) in a clothing closet. He had all of his awards, although it was a great closet. I wish I had a like a big fabulous walk-in closet kind of thing. Great dressing rooms, New York, yeah. Uh And he had a little table, and he had all of his little awards. Of course, you know, as soon as he'd leave, I'd take all the awards and you know. Oh, of course you would. Um, practice crazy my speech. Not to, yes. Practice my speech, which I'm still working on. Totally. Um, is that the thing you're working on that you keep revising? <laughs> yes, actually, <laughs> yes, that's it is. I'm trying to do it without crying. Oh, uh, excellent. Be, but um, yeah, there is so you know it's it's taken on this importance that we, you know when they put the award in the person's hand, it's like suddenly it's like they've cured cancer right. and they start. You know, it's and in the old days, it used to just be a fun. Right. Party, a publicity stunt. And I do think that there is a feeling that there's so many award shows by the time the Oscars come into play that it's not quite as fun and glamorous as it as it used to be. And, yeah. and because the same people seem to keep winning, right. it I, I it doesn't feel uh, very dramatic. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, Francis McDormand won again. Again. Which is, you know, you're like, so it's great it's you know but it's the same the same person i think the most dramatic thing that may happen this year drum roll is what if meryl streep does not get nominated oh those are the, right. the only drama things um right. i'll be curious about that that'd be a big upset right yeah i thought it was like a national law in hollywood i think she, it probably she is has to be it has to be nominated she has to be nominated oh my goodness well you know the thing is is that sort of piggybacking on what you're saying there aren't many surprises anymore no, so you know we've talked not. about this before everyone shows up on the red carpet dressed by an expert yes and let's face it if if I was going to anything like that, I would definitely call in an expert to help. Um, yeah. So you don't get to, I mean, you, you get some sense of a person's style, but but really it's, you know, they've yeah. been manufactured. Yes, right? that's true. And then there aren't surprises like Moonlight. There aren't mm-hmm. surprises like, you know, a lot of things, but maybe. Um, well, that's always the big, I know Richard Dreyfus told me that, you know, the, the, 
that's the hardest thing about winning an Oscar is, is that how quickly people literally the shelf life of people remembering that you won an Oscar is, <laughs> is incredibly short. Is incredibly short. You have a little window, you know, while you have to go for the gusto. Uh, let's bring in Ed, shall we? Please, let's do let's enough do of my blather. I hope you like my vest. This is from a movie I did called Search and Destroy. I love it when you and I looked in the closet and I said, I want to look like character in a Jerry Lewis movie. Ed is coming in. Okay, Ed, I'm going to I'm going to talk about you as opposed to talking about my own career. Uh, he has written I'm I'm going to get to your your first the line of your bio which I love, but you've written for the Laverne and Shirley show, Gary Shandling, uh, also such films as the Bill and Ted movies, Super Mario Brothers. Oh, I was in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina when you shot really? you I was there? hardly there. I only worked a few weeks on that movie. I'm I, sorry to say. I, I talk about that I talk about that crazy summer in Wilmington. It was insane and I, I wish I to be, I know there are a lot of fans of that movie and a lot yeah. of not, but I can't take credit because I, I was like fourth of seven or seventh of nine writers or yeah, something like that. Yeah, that but. was a crazy experience. I was doing a little a tiny movie called uh, Household Saints nearby, but there was like 18 movies being shot yeah. at the same time at Wilmington and we were all hanging out. Okay, I'm, yeah, I bet I interrupted oh, your yeah, credits. <laughs> Char- Charlie's Angels. Was that credited or uncredited? I was credited, but I can't take credit for that. I know that was a hit, a hit Ooh, because okay. there were a lot of writers after me on that one too yeah yeah uh okay we're gonna get to that. i have a question about bill murray on that one men in black of course but barry seinfeld and you've teamed up with uh steven soderbergh which is question number two i'm gonna get to it because i talk about his commentaries all the time they're, oh, they're literally that's like crack it's my favorite uh, thing. amazing and and working with them was sh- like getting commentary all the time but you were gonna wow. yeah so mosaic go for it. Uh, talk more about please it. welcome <laughs> ed solomon thank you so much for being here because i know you live do you live in new york or do you live i here? moved to new york i used to, i lived here my entire adult life but i moved there a year and a half you don't tell me what street but what area just so i can soho Ah, incredible. Beautiful area. I live on off off Spring Street. Yeah, we have another room. You're welcome. (laughs) So it's a deal, right? Okay, so you're coming. You just let me know when you're going to be there. I was just talking about... I a key for you right Uh, now. Thank you. you. Oh, my God. Oh, and a quarter to help with the travel. Yeah. Well, you know, this and a quarter will (laughs) get you. No (laughs) subway fare. Thank you. (laughs) My pleasure. No, I was just talking about because my grandfather had an amazing apartment uh, on Riverside Drive. Yeah, you know, it was like those. I dream when I dream. I often go back to that apartment. You know those halls, and yeah, it was just my fantasy of of you know how as I write about in my my book of just like a life. I'm like <laughs> I have got to get this life somehow with like awards. But he kept his awards in the closet. You know, I was just talking to someone else who's saying the same thing. Like I think that's the kind of cool way to do it because it's. It, totally. Everyone sees it. It's a humble brag. Let's be honest. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Grandpa had a humble brag because yeah. he had all of them. Yeah. And they were, but they were on this little antique table. I took a picture. I have a photo of it. The photo right. did not make the book, but uh, but he had a he had a little sort of an antique table, and all everything was there, and he had some pictures and things like that in the closet. Right. Everyone I know that has them kind of hidden, kind of tucked away. Yeah. They also find a way to get you to go into their closet. <laughs> 
They're like, um, hey, if you need a, a raincoat, I'm like, no, no, I'm good. Uh, but there is one. I got one for you. No, no, actually, I'm good. Uh, could you mind getting funny. me my raincoat? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. You, just me get it? Okay, yeah. sure. And then you open the door. Oh, my God. You have an Oscar? <laughs> Which for, I didn't realize. Oh, it's just a short film. Best short film. Nobody knew. I, sorry. Yeah, just no, a little. It was, yeah. It was just a, a little um, thing. Is it in the closet? Yes. <laughs> it's in your closet. You knew it was in It's like people who go to Harvard. Um, you know, they make sure that you ask them, where did you go to college? Yes. And then, yeah, anyway. Now, uh, did you ever meet Jerry Lewis? Do you know about his Oscar? It was, you know, it was on a platform that revolved. <laughs> I believe that. Totally. Right. That's the other Jerry way Lewis. to go. That's was Jerry Lewis. Yeah. It was like he was behind his desk and it was, of course, lit and it turned. My only so. time I ever, well, I, I once had a meeting with Sylvester Stallone. At, uh-huh. Oh, sorry. I just dropped another name. Oh, put that right here. I met a meeting this with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, this yeah is clearly. We've already, it's incredible. We're going crazy with it already. We haven't yeah. even hardly started. I love it. First time, I, I worked with him briefly on this animated thing, and uh-huh. I met with him, Chris Matheson, who I had co-written this movie with, and yeah. I met with him at his house. Drive up to his house, and I'm like, oh my God, Sylvester Stallone's house, right? Heaven. It's giant house yeah um we go in and he says oh, i'll be right with you I'll be, I'll be right with you and he he leads us into a room and he goes it's kind of my trophy room but just hang out here it's just where i it's just i gotta do some stuff he disappears and we're looking around and oscar and photos and awards and you know like yeah. stuff everywhere it's like about 10 minutes later he comes back in and he goes I-, I didn't really have to do anything i just wanted <laughs> you to look at all this stuff and then the other thing he said and obviously you see i can't do impressions i was like you have a lot of art and he's like yeah i know i was like where did you get it he goes seriously you know you can shop at the louvre um, and i was like wait are you serious <laughs> he's like yeah you just ask them how much and they'll sell it to you oh there's my like God. i guess there's like a basement where wow yeah. i mean shock like filene's basement <laughs> <laughs> yeah for art but it art. really is that. That's what the Louvre actually is. There's really wow. no difference. It's like a big that pile. Is so okay. There are bins of Picassos, actually, just bins. Oh you got- my god, it's a different. It's a different world. That's it like is. that's now. I'm getting name direct back at you. Uh oh. When I worked with Nicole Kidman and she was married to Tom Cruise. Well, wow, that's two. You got a two for there. Oh yeah, thank you. Good <laughs> call. Good call. Uh, Touche. And they were renting this house. And like they were, we had just gotten there and we were like, how did you rent a house so quickly? And Tom said, same thing. He goes, oh, you just go up to the, per- <laughs> you just find a house you like and you go up to it and hand them a bag of money. And they're now renting their house. Yeah. It was like, Jesus. <laughs> By the way, like- if you're Tom Cruise, this is what you can do. You can literally go, <laughs> I'm getting tired. I don't have nowhere to stay. And just walk up to a house and knock on a door. And oh, and they'll open it and they'll go, yeah. Do you mind if I crash? Like, right. Yeah. Q, us looking into the camera, quoting F. Scott Fitzgerald, the rich are not like you. Okay. Now, I must ask you, we are meandering around my favorite, my first question, oh, okay. which is the most important part of the podcast. Do you remember the first movie you saw and who took you to see it? Bananas. Wow. Oh, that's my a, parents had cool. a, they had a clothing store, a woman's clothing store. I had, to be, I'd, I'd been dropped off at matinees before then as a little kid yeah. who would run around theaters. And I think it was just so my parents could have a break. Yeah. But- uh, my parents had a clothing store in the early 70s in a mall that had a shopping center. And mm-hmm. the first movie that I remember going to, that I remember was a thing, as opposed to just 
some movie. Right. Was Bananas, my dad, and I believe it affected a lot of things because, first of all, me and my dad at the movies. Secondly, mm. my dad laughing. Mm. Then it was that guy, that guy, the guy that made that other movie. He's got another one. And, you know, what do you think? Let's go. It was, I guess, Sleeper. I'm trying to mm-hmm. remember what was next. Take the Money and Run. I think that was before Bananas. And then it was yeah. then Sleeper. And then the guy's got another one. And I remember going to Annie Hall, right? Yeah. And, um, or Love and Death. Love and Death. And then yeah. Annie Hall. And yeah. by then I was just hooked on that. Now it's interesting because we were talking about Soho. I don't know, maybe four months ago, rainy day morning, I got up to go to work. I stepped out of my apartment and ran into Woody Allen. Oh, my Literally God. Literally bumped into him. He was filming right on my street. My street, which is um, a cobblestone street. Yeah. Or a brick, you know, brickstone yeah, street. Yeah, like Hannah and her sisters. I'm right there. Yeah. Okay. It was, uh, you know, dressed as a Woody Allen movie. And it was interesting because, you know, now with everything that has changed, mm-hmm. I found myself... Looking at him was just after the Harvey Weinstein stuff had happened. Uh-huh. And people were talking about, you know, him and Woody Allen in not such a favorable light and other right. people. And that's where my first thought went was like, I wonder what happens now to mm. him. But it was also interesting because I looked at the movie set that was my street and mm. I thought about the my relationship with him as an artist as a child and i thought isn't it interesting how over the course of a career or a lifetime that re- you you have to revisit these ideas about people and revisit these ideas mm-hmm. about your relationship to them and then i thought what's the difference what do i think of him as an artist what do i think of him as a person i, I don't have, i didn't have yeah. i don't know the guy so i can't really speak to except for the things i've read you know mm-hmm. but anyway Anyway, it was Woody Allen, a Woody Allen movie. It's an interesting, just as a sidebar, it's such an interesting, I was having a conversation last night with a with a very famous female comedian, a uh, little but, bit older. So now you decide not to name drop. Yes. Okay. Because we're going to see where so this is going. It's a personal story. Eh? Okay. Right. It was Paula Poundstone. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, and we were saying, she's a little older, and we so we were talking again about the current climate, and I, I said... As a writer and as a funny person, most of the horrible, tragic stuff that has happened to me has become funny anecdotes. Right. And so some of this discussion is that if if everything is fixed for you, therefore, what as a writer, again, what well do you have to draw from? If everything is very black and very white, you know, if sometimes terrible things should you can keep them private and process them into into art or into something that is a work of art or a script or something like that. Is that do you think about that at all? What do you mean by fix for you? I, I. I mean, fix for you, like that. We're gonna have. We're now gonna have these, like you know, something bad happens to you, and you call it out immediately, right? You know, but even the act of calling it out is an emotional thing. I don't think we're ever going to be short mm-hmm. of painful emotional experiences from which to draw mm-hmm. art uh-huh. out of ourselves. I think if you're atta- if you're connected to the world in any way, and to the right. people in your life, and to the world around you, you are always. <laughs> 
Congratulations. You're all good news. You're always going to have pain. You're always going to have uh, stuff that's going to make you mad. You're always going to have sadness. You're always going to mm-hmm. have disappointment. You're always going to be able to find something deep to point to to then make hay out of. So right. I think it's a actually I think it's a way of living to no matter how to take anything. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see yeah I don't see any downside to being able to put anything out in the open. I don't think that stuff goes away. I think, mm-hmm. and by the way, if you've had pain, it doesn't mean you have to have pain your whole life to be an artist. If you have had pain and have empathy for others who have pain, that's a way into it. Mm-hmm. It's when you haven't experienced or are unable or unwilling to experience in others that I don't think you can make anything of resonance. Yeah. It's just an interesting, you know, with the kids, it's obviously a huge, huge, bigger discussion of just, you know, it started when everybody had to win awards on the baseball team. And you you know what I mean? These little things that creep in and, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, there is a certain, I look back on my childhood of, you know, alcoholic teachers and everything. <laughs> oh my that, God. You know, that yeah. I'm like, I kind of miss, I mean, I sort of feel sorry for the kids, like that they don't have much chaos with which to draw humor from. That That's the sort of point I guess I'm making. I think there's just <laughs> but new, you're saying there's new evolved chaos. I think saying there's everyone, horrible. Oh yeah. There's I think. A, I think um, I, I, I when I was I remember when I was seven there was a guy who used to drive around in a big yellow Cadillac without pants, <laughs> and he would try to call the kids to the car to get you know hey kids hey look and uh, the um, the whole neighborhood rallied together to protect the kids by telling him. Don't go near the guy with the car. Right. That was it. Right, that was right. the only repercussions that guy ever had, which was don't go. It was never right. let's call the police on the guy with the car. It was right. just stay away from the guy with the car. <laughs> Things yes. change. You get yes. more aware. Yeah, there was know? a subtle. Uh, yes, I understand. I had an experience like that because when I grew, I grew up near the drive-in and there was the, yeah. cl- the classic, the guy with the candy. Oh, yeah. I almost fell for it. <laughs> it was candy yeah. after all. I, look, I had a favorite teacher of mine say he'd give me a better grade if I let him put his hand down my pants i mean we and i just was like oh that's so-and-so you know like uh, yeah i've had look we you know we could get super personal but like i can really feel for people that have had events occur Mm. to them when they were powerless especially when they're sexual in nature right and i've had that happen to me too as a child and i actually said me too i didn't mean to say it as the me too thing yes but i i have had that happen to me and it can I swear on here? Yes. Yeah, please. It fucks you up. Yeah. It fucks you up. It fucks up your relationship with your sexuality. It fucks up your relationship with your body. It fucks up your relationship with your partner. It's mm-hmm. fucked up relationships I've had with women who remind me of the people that were involved mm-hmm. that I that happened to me through, so right. to speak. It can mess you up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it takes a lot of work to untangle that. And uh, so I think... There isn't a downside to it coming forward more mm-hmm. now. I think, and I and I base that on the fact that I believe we'll always have pain in life to draw on as an mm-hmm. artist, and you don't need that one. You know, right. in fact, sometimes those are the ones you can't really untangle. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that are too complex. Those are the ones that you're just trying to deal with on a personal level to survive your life. Right. Some people can draw and make art out of it, 
But sometimes that just informs and infuses the personality of the person and then gives them a different interesting lens through which they view life. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to see and feel other people's pain. Yeah. Which allows them to have more empathy and um, connect with people more Mm -hmm. as an artist. Well, it's definitely interesting in terms of, you know, we've been talking to writers all month. And so how processing this and the future and our president and how I'm just always curious how, again, it will affect humor, (laughs) storytelling. What is funny? What is not fun? What is satire? Is there no such thing as satire anymore? Satire has definitely taken a turn. (laughs) Satire and reality have Dr. Strangelove is like, is that a satire now or is it a documentary? It's amazing to watch. (laughs) It's just amazing because satire has changed you it's right. almost I, I i i don't work obviously i don't work on saturday night live but i happen to have a, a passing acquaintance with um a, uh one of the writers of the show and mm-hmm. i was like i have an idea for a sketch for snl and you guys might have done something like this i don't know and here's the idea verbatim do a scene do this scene there was something that happened politically do this scene with donald trump and Kellyanne Conway, and it was a few other people. I said, do it verbatim, seriously. I think that's the only place to go now, mm. satirically. Just do it, with, and don't try to go for laughs, because it's so bizarre what was said. Yeah. And I thought, okay, that's where satire is going. Like, the world <laughs> is so mess. It's so crazy. And it's, I mean, when you're um, in America and you don't leave America very often, mm. you don't see what the rest of the world sees about America now. Oh, God. <laughs> I can't. I, can't even I know we should probably. Now it's like abuse. Uh, now we're getting depressed when we talk about which yeah. leads me to my next question because I'm. It, it's always so sad. Sometimes when I think like the great funny minds, and I really miss what they would have said, been saying. Yeah. So uh, I talk about a little bit about your relationship with Gary Shandling. I, I worked mm. with Gary on later on in the Larry Sanders show. Had a profound influence on on my life. I found out when he passed away. Apparently, this is what he did with everybody. There were so many people he gave advice to, or mm. uh, but you were involved in his first show. Uh, it's Gary Shandling. I used to write jokes for Gary. I, before you no now before oh my when god I was in college I met Gary when I was um, nineteen mm-hmm. I was a, a budding college comedian doing stand up and in fact Judd Apatow made a documentary about Gary that is beautiful I think it's a really beautiful piece of work and uh, there's a brief moment where Gary comes on stage and you can see me introduce him and walk away um, ah. he uh, he came to me after my set mm-hmm. and he said I have a lot of thoughts about your set are you interested in writing you could be a writer Do, would you interested in writing with me and I said yeah and he goes okay watch me work and see what you think so I watched him do a stand up and that began a relationship that changed my life mm-hmm. so it was more than me just working on his show Gary was the guy who said to me you can be a writer he looked at my stand up set and he said, and I had done like way too long that night. I'd done 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a good set, I thought. It was like I, I stayed on stage longer than I should have because right. I was getting laughs. And he said, let's get rid of almost all those jokes. Mm-hmm. And let's look at these two jokes. Hmm. And now let's optimize. Let's pull those out and see why do those jokes work. And now 
put those together and get more of those. And he goes, you know, George, he was talking about George Carlin in this first night after this show. Mm-hmm. And the irony is I was talking to Kelly Carlin today, funnily enough, in, about her dad, George. It's just so interesting. When Gary was starting out, he didn't know anyone in the comedy world. And he drove from Tucson, where he lived, to Phoenix to see George perform. And he went backstage afterwards and he said, I want to write stand-up. I want to, I want to be you. I want to you know, I write jokes. Could you look at my stuff? And he left, his, uh, he left a bunch of his notes for, for George and came back the next day, drove back down and <laughs> drove back up. And George gave him all this feedback on his stuff. And mm-hmm. in my first meeting with Gary, Gary talked about that meeting with George. Gary said to me, I want you to meet a friend of mine. This is after I've been writing jokes with Gary for a couple of years, Mm -hmm. for Gary. I want you to meet a friend of mine. He produces television. I happen to have a play that I had written being performed at UCLA at the time. And this producer came to that play that Gary introduced me to. And he hired me on Laverne and Shirley when I was a senior in college. And suddenly I was a writer, like a professional writer. And I owe that to Gary. So then Gary had this show. It's Gary Shanley show. Yeah. He said, I'm doing the show. You want to work on it? And I was like, yeah. And that was so much fun working on that show. Gary was the epitome of the guy with the unresolved life who makes other people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Now, he also was a troubled, messed up, guy self-involved you know romantically challenged (laughs) (laughs) um struggling you know but he would go he would he would go out of his way to help you to um as long as it didn't require committing to anything, like he was, right. he couldn't commit to a thing. He couldn't even commit to. He was at one time we were having a conversation where he was saying, "Am I, am I like, do I have trouble committing?" He was saying to me, "I do, don't I?" Well, actually, no, I don't think I do because, and I'm like Gary, you can't even commit to whether you commit or not. And he's like, "That's very funny," or, or I'm laughing really hard at that. He would say without smiling. Yes, I, re- I remember those stares. I was when I pitched jokes. <laughs> this this one. Yes, the yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. So Gary was amazing for me, like a an incredible. And and I didn't see him much the last ten years. You know, saw him a few times. The last What's time I get, saw him, go ahead. He got involved with him boxing. What, what, like that was like the odd left turn. I think it, it did nobody several saw... things for him. I think yeah, he really and he would talk about it and do the head jab bob thing. And you know, I think it gave him it it helped him connect. It was physical. It uh-huh. brought him out of his head. It made him, um, I think it made him feel alive and connected. And mm-hmm. he seemed to be less and less connected in the last part of his the last five, eight years. You right. Know? And um, the last time I saw him, the very last time I saw him was at a restaurant in uh, Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. It was about three months before he died, maybe four months before he died. And we had had from the very first writing session I ever had with him when I was 19 years old, Mm -hmm. a joke that we co-wrote. The cow joke, we call it. And I came up with the first part of it, and he actually really made it funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, the premise was, 
and this was my pitch. Have you ever noticed when someone's driving a car and they drive by a cow they see on the side of the road, they stick their head out the window and they go, moo, like the cow's thinking, hey, there's a cow driving that car. <laughs> and then Gary built it out to, you know, and he's driving a Mercedes. I'm out here eating grass. And he, he built it out and built it out and got it. The best laughs were actually Gary's ads to it. Yeah. But we were, I was 19. <laughs> <laughs> From then until the last time I saw him, I mean, basically, for, for every six months would be this fake argument about who wrote the cow joke. Was it him or right. me? He did it on The Tonight Show. Oh, I remember the joke very well. <laughs> okay, yeah. so when I, um, last time I saw him, I was in this restaurant writing, and I, saw, I noticed Gary sit down with his boxing teacher, interestingly, and someone else from the gym. Interesting, right? Yes. And I notice Gary's over there. And Gary doesn't see me because his back's to me. So I get the waiter and I say, hey, do me a favor. Oh, my God. Go up to that guy there <laughs> and say, excuse me, sir. I'm a big fan of the first half of the cow joke. <laughs> and so I'm watching, right? And the waiter, God bless him, because like two-thirds of all waiters in L.A. are pretty much actors as well. Yeah. Um, he, I see him walk up. I see him bend over. Imagine like two people's backs to me, right? Yeah. I see him whisper. I see Gary laugh and turn in his chair like this. And he comes over and we talk. And this is sad because I hadn't seen him in about two, really at all in like two years. Mm -hmm. And we talked for a while. It was actually really nice. Then he goes back to be with the people he's at lunch Mm -hmm. with. And I hear him as he's sitting saying, it's one of my oldest, dearest friends in the world. And what was so sad was Mm. we hadn't even really connected in... 10 years, mm-hmm. like in any way at yeah. all. And I thought that's where he is. He's in a, he, yeah. Um, when you're, how do I put it? It's hard living <laughs> as a funny person like that. I, I mm-hmm. you know, I don't have that. I'm not a public person. You know, it's hard when you walk, go in the world and people know, believe they know you and mm-hmm. the cues you get from human beings in life are right. different than the cues you get. Like when I go into the world, mm-hmm. I have to dole out certain cues. If I want to be treated nicely, <laughs> I have to act nicely. If I want to be treated with respect, I have to act with respect. Mm-hmm. But when you're that well, getting that well known, especially in the world of comedy, and it's funny because mm-hmm. one of the things Kelly, Carlin and I were talking about was this in relation to her dad and mm-hmm. other people who are especially known for being funny because making someone laugh hits them at a level that is uh, a deep and mm-hmm. personal that um, you know they feel a different relationship to you. And so when you're well-known and you're out in the world, the world itself actually colludes to give you really w- crossed mixed signals about mm-hmm. what it means to be a human being. It's not even your fault. Mm-hmm. The world treats you differently and it changes you. I think on a DNA... I Actually, I'm not obviously... a by what I'm saying, clearly not a scientist, but it changes your DNA, I think. <laughs> I'm sure it, cha- it does. It, it, it changes the way you're wired, let's put it that way. Yeah. No, anyway. I'm sure I'm sure it does. God, thanks so much for... T- I mean, because I'm fascinated, having worked with them and spent some time with them, a fascinating individual, and I'm always fascinated by people that all of a sudden sort of start to isolate and you don't really yeah. know wh- why. They had, you know, and then they, they always have a sort of a posse uh, around them, yeah. and that also keeps them somewhat away yeah. from people and so then you start to feel 
as too much time goes by, I, same thing. I was like, I should reach out to him. And yeah. But people sort of make it seem like, oh, he's busy and he won't be, you know. Well, he, it's a one-way, it, it can be a one-way relationship Yeah. Um, sometimes. The last time I, um, it was funny because I got, one time I was flying, uh, landed, noticed on my phone when I turned it on again, there were six messages from Gary. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? And he, he's like, I listened to the last one. He's like, call me when you can. It's really important. I call him. He's like, I'm in trouble. And I'm like, oh my God, what do you need? And I was like in the cab, right? And he goes, I'm doing, <laughs> he goes, it was a Friday night. He goes, I'm doing uh, Leno on Thursday. <laughs> and by the way, I was 49 years old at the time. This I remember because I remember thinking, wow, I haven't written jokes for him since I was 19 or 20, right? Yeah. He goes, I'm doing Leno on Thursday and I don't have a set. I haven't been doing stand-up. And I was like, oh, that's the emergency. Okay. And he said, I'm gotta, I got I to gotta do a gig tonight at the Comedy Magic Club. Can you come down with me? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I can. Yeah. So I go to his house. He's, um, he's got all these jokes. He's reading them out. We get in the car. We get down to the Comedy Magic Club. I'm 49 years old. When I was 19, I used to go down <laughs> to the Comedy Magic Club with Gary with a notebook. And I would stand in the back in a certain spot. He would do a set. And I would take notes. And sometimes I would like... If I had an idea, I'd punch it up or I'd whatever, whatever notes you took, yeah. you know, as like a friend and confidant and writer. I'm 49. I have two kids. I'm now divorced. My hair is this color. <laughs> I take this notebook. I stand at the back of the Comedy Magic Club in the same exact spot. Gary does a set. I take your notes. And for me, this is gigantic and weird because to me, it's like, 30 years have passed mm. and I'm back in a moment that is has an entirely different meaning to me. Gary gets off stage, we talk, and I realize Gary's in the same moment. Like for Gary, it was, mm. well, I, I used to call on Ed for this. I'm calling on Ed for this. Now he has a ton of writers, way better comedy writers than me, much funnier writers than I am, much... You know, but for whatever reason, in his he went to that moment, mm -hmm. and it was never a discussion about from him mm -hmm. about. Uh, isn't this weird? Yeah. <laughs> All I was thinking is, isn't this weird? And this is amazing. And oh my god, I'm living this life, this moment, like it was a week or two since the last moment. But it's thirty years since that last <laughs> moment. But he's living it actually, like. It's a week or two we, away. It was he, so odd. You've established these relationships. Yeah. It sounds like. But he, he went to that. Like yeah. that synapse went. And so that, uh -huh. I think. And, and by the way, there are other parts where, you know, you would give Gary a script. He would read it and give you notes. You would, uh, you know, he, the other thing that was incredible about Gary was he was really genuinely happy for your success. Mm -hmm. He was genuinely happy if you did something he wanted to do, even if he couldn't get it done. He would then think, I got to do that. I got to figure out how to do that. But he was always happy for you yeah. as a friend, which was an incredibly generous thing to do. Took deep pride in other people's mm -hmm. 
doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, now I miss him even more. All right. I miss well, him a lot. I think about him a lot. Oh, actually. my God. I think about him all the time. And I don't want to, I, I could spend an hour just talking about just the weird insights and that he could be mercurial and interesting oh, and frustrating and menacing as hell. And, 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 and hard to work with and, and, <laughs> and, and harder for, with women, to be honest. I, uh, women writers, I, I only found out recently one of the women writers on It's Gary Shandling Show had a very harrowing on set experience. Um, I hadn't been there for, but. I didn't even know about. Oh, really? Yeah, I felt like every day it. with him was. But then he'd turn around and be like, give me a clock. You know, it was like that kind of, again, this Jerry Lewis type, like, yeah. you know, gave me a clock, like yelled at me and then turned around and gave me a beautiful clock and said, you're my favorite. You know, it was so, who uh, yeah. knows? But it, all, all, all reasons I got into show business. For yeah. these for these uh, great stories, okay. So let's talk about now. What was your? Um, we didn't. You were writing jokes, but then how did it move into screenwriting? I wanted to be a writer always. Mm-hmm. I got this job uh, on the TV show because I had been writing jokes and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, I had a really tough time on my first job on Laverne and Shirley. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. I was I, I was young. I was probably too young to go from being funny with my college friends and were, I was working a bit as a stand-up and as a joke writer. I was actually paying for school by selling that kind of selling jokes and stuff. But going from that to professionally funny in a room of professionally funny people with mm-hmm. the schedule that especially right. Laverne and Shirley was on was very intimidating. There was a thing. Um, there was a thing called nap time on the show, where the producer announced that every day from three to three thirty, we're turning the phones off. Everyone's going to take a nap because we have to work really hard this season because we have a compressed schedule. We're doing twenty-two shows in twenty-three weeks. I would lie in my office at nap time trying to nap, unable to sleep, and then I'd come back from nap time, and everyone had all their energy, and I was like, I just lay there thinking I'm going to be fired any moment. <laughs> So I was a wreck and they were all perfectly energetic. About 20 years later, I had lunch with one of the people I worked with on the show. And um, I was talking about meditation because that has become and had for the last couple of decades for me been a saving grace for me. Helped me through all sorts. My divorce helped me through professional situations. And, you know, I said, man, I wish I meditated during nap time because that would have been the perfect time to meditate. And he's like, nap time? I was like, yeah, don't you remember when... They, they told us it was nap time from 3 to 3.30 and like everyone was sleeping and you you guys always were had all the energy and because you napped and I came back and I had no energy and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was like, nap time, 3 to 3.30. He goes, oh, no one was <laughs> napping. We were doing coke. I was like, what? I was, are you kidding me? I was lying in my office trying to nap and... That's why you had all the energy. <laughs> and that's funny because then on Gary Shandling's show, we used to have this little hour break between the run-through and then the late-night table read. And yeah. I lived very close to the studio. So I used to go home, run around Silver Lake, shower, and then buzz back. And I'd come back all ruddy and you know, red-faced and yeah. full of energy. And I found out later that a couple of the people on the show thought I was going away doing coke. <laughs> of course. That's <laughs> so funny. Anyway... So how did I get into it? So that was a really hard experience. Right. And I actually, it knocked me on my ass. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this. I'm a, I thought at 22 years old, legitimately thought, that could have been it. Mm-hmm. Like a flash in the pan. That was it. Whoosh, whoosh. 
And I, uh, I struggled for like a year and a half. Couldn't get a TV thing, couldn't get a TV job. Made money selling jokes again, did some stand-up and stuff like that. Supported myself kind of piecemeal, but was really living on my $13,000 that I had saved from Laverne and Shirley. Not a lot, but at the time I had roommates and, you know, 20 bucks a week was all I needed for food. Uh, a lot of toasty dogs and pop ramen. <laughs> and I um, then we, my friends and I were doing an improv group, n- not um, in front of an audience. We rented a theater only to do to push ourselves and to work out. And w- once a week, we would just try to make each other laugh and make ourselves laugh. And in the middle of it, we came up with these characters, Bill and Ted, but just random, like a random in the middle of the thing, mm. and. Chris Matheson, with my, my Bill, who I co-wrote mm-hmm. Bill and Ted with, he and I just loved doing the characters. And we started doing them back and forth for like a year. Um, and then we decided to try and write a script. And by then, I was at the very end of my, let's say, infatuation period with my agents. I should say they were, not, they were running out of infatuation with me <laughs> is the point. And they read the script and didn't like it. And weren't going to send it out. And I made this impassioned plea. I went in with Chris. Uh, Chris drove me in, waited down in the parking lot. I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk him into sending the script out. And I go in. I get this meeting with all the agents. And I believe in this. And it really makes me laugh. And I want you guys to. And long story short, I left without agents. <laughs> they fired me. <laughs> they were like, we hear you. Okay. You're fired. And now I walk out. He's like, how'd it go? Uh, we don't have an agent. But another agent that I had met when I first got the Laverne and Shirley job, who had stayed in touch with me, I showed it to him, mm-hmm. and he was like, I like this script. And the script ended up taking off in a way that just ignited mm-hmm. my future career. And that's how it happened. His name was David Greenblatt. And what's interesting to me is how they talk about the business of relationships and all that. The actual relationship part of it was when I got my Laverne and Shirley job, I didn't know the first thing about who to sign with as an agent, but I was already employed. So mm-hmm. I'm a 21-year-old kid on a TV show. So I didn't realize just how appealing that is to an agent because, A, they don't have to get me work. I'm working. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of potential and hope in something like that. So I'd heard of an agent, a big fancy agent, and I just called them. I heard him because he spoke at a friend's screenwriting class. Mm-hmm. Um, wrong fit. I'd met this young agent who really believed in me, but I was like, eh, I'm going with the fancy guy. Fancy thing didn't work out, but I stayed in touch with the young guy, mm-hmm. and it was his belief in Bill and Ted that then got us started, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that was way back then, and now, you know, here we are. Here we are now. <laughs> did you like, uh, I mean, it did, uh, you know, it did take off. Uh, the, uh, do you have fun memories of working with Keanu Reeves? I always thought he was so funny. I wish he'd do more comedy. He was lovely. I was, um, we've been actually working with Keanu and Alex, who mm-hmm. are Ted and Bill, yeah. and uh, Chris Matheson and me, and um, Dean Pariseau, who directed Galaxy Quest, and actually Steven Soderbergh, who, who directed Mosaic. Love Galaxy Quest. Mm-hmm. Love Galaxy Quest. Steven's producing along with Scott Kroof, the original producer, on a third Bill and Ted movie that we still haven't gotten the financing for, 
but we have been working for 10 years trying, oh, trying to get it I made. I would love it. Bill and Ted has middle-aged men, and yeah. yeah. We, I mean, so killer. Yes, I... Can I be in it? I'll sure. Be, I'll be a saucy... Uh, X Y for something. Anyway, okay, we're gonna run out of time. We, oh uh, let's God. talk about men in men in black. Yeah, you bet. Uh, working with Barry Sonnenfeld, really a funny guy at yeah. the top of his game. I I think he, I think one of the reasons that Men in Black worked, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and I've had a lot of things that haven't worked. Sometimes my, you know some of it my fault, sometimes not my fault. But mm-hmm. you know it's just the vicissitudes of things. But one of the things that I'm so grateful about about Men in Black is you have all these people working at the top of their game, like yeah. Barry and bringing like incredible crew in, and Will and Tommy and Vincent D'Onofrio and like people, Linda Fiorentino and like just really gifted people. I love Gary. Gary Barry, I mean Barry made me laugh so much. He was really funny. He mm-hmm. used to give me the weirdest. I remember his notes. He would give me notes, not detailed, but either more words, less words, <laughs> or DB, which meant do better. Those were his notes. Literally, more words, wow. less words, DB. Nothing else. So when you when Sue gives you a note, do better. What, like what? What is that? Yeah, I know. How do you, <laughs> yeah, how do you yeah. process that? You, you or do you know? Does the writer know. always know? You sort of know. And and honestly, get to it sooner. Or, yeah, I don't know. and actually, those notes are actually good. Yeah, my favorite notes. Well, first of all, actors give the best notes without a doubt. Uh huh. An actor who says. What am I doing here? Like, why am I saying this? Those that is always correct. When an actor has trouble memorizing a scene, oh. it's always a writing problem. You're and right. It's because something's not connecting at a deep That's level. True. When stuff's connecting at a deep level, it, it it's really easy to memorize. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. The other notes that are really good for me are inarticulate mumblings from people that are honest. Like, what'd you think? I don't know. I got kind of I don't know. Like it got here. It just was like what or. I was bored or here or I don't know. It's just like, it's okay. Those are way better than like writers who give you notes, like, which are usually how they would do it instead. People who try to solve your problems don't help you. People who assess where there is a problem yeah. really help you. Yes. Oh my God. I can't, everything you just said, I just, hallelujah. I totally agree with. Um, okay. The reboot of Charlie's Angels. I mean, you said... I didn't really... I can't take responsibility. Are they rebooting Charlie's Angels? Oh, you mean are talking the one I was the, involved yeah, with? Yeah, the one you were They're involved rebooting with. it again, I think, too, which is weird. Oh, I can't really? take too much credit for it. I wrote a draft uh, that I really liked, but I was the first writer, and mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they got rid of it, pretty much mm-hmm. all of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I only got credit because I was the first writer, and That's so many other part, people had right? worked on it. But honestly, John August and, and Ryan Rowe, to a degree, uh, but mostly uh, John August... Deserves the credit for making it the, the movie that the successful movie it was. I, I can't take the credit for that. Did you know that Bill Murray was going to be involved? No, and I, I had forgotten. <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up because because well, uh, he always he has a he's sort of known to like to bring in his own writers. I was so long gone by then. Oh, I see. Okay, all right. That's why the experience with Soderbergh on Mosaic was so incredible. Coming out of the screenwriting yeah. mill into a scenario where your mandate is. Let's break new ground. Mm-hmm. Let's be as creative as we can be. Mm-hmm. Let's be as diligent as we can be. Let's work as hard as we can, but let's create the safe space in which to do it. Mm-hmm. And go do your thing and do it as deep as you can do it. And and you go. Yeah. That was an amazing experience. 
Um, so let's talk about Steven Soderbergh. As I said at the top, I, I do. You, do you listen ever to his commentaries that he does on films? I haven't listened to the listen commentaries, to but I have spent night after night so after night listening to him talk <laughs> about movies and going. You don't need the damn DVDs. I go. This is amazing. Oh my god! I'm having yeah. the most amazing experience listening to the way this guy articulates these thoughts. And mm-hmm. so, not only does he have thoughts at a different level than people, you know, have. He articulates them in a way that is clear and simple to understand. He's, um, but he's also beyond that. Just on set and in the creative experience, mm-hmm. just calm and confident and trusting, and it just makes you bring your A game. Doesn't try to micromanage. The least controlling director I've ever worked with. The most in control mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. The most, con- and that confidence is what lets him let you do your thing, which is why we've all worked with directors who are lacking in confidence. And mm-hmm. sometimes the manifestation of it, as I'm sure you know, is micromanage over become, uh, there's a sort of almost neurotic um, desire to, it's not just that they're conducting the orchestra, they're trying to play every instrument. And, right. You know. Yeah. What, does does it make you have you ever wanted to direct yourself? I've directed a few times, not uh, not a lot, and mm-hmm. as, um, I have other. Right now, I'm not directing for another probably year mm-hmm. because of just family situation and child mm-hmm. and having kids and that kind of thing. But I like it; it's fun. I like doing it, and I look forward to doing it more. But I also really love working with directors that bring out better work in me, and so. You know, I like it both. In terms, and what is Mosaic about? Mosaic's a it's a mystery, a crime mystery, and mm-hmm. it's it's being it's told in two entirely different ways at the same time. Meaning, you can watch it on your phone or computer mm-hmm. or iPad uh, as an app where you, which you download for free, and you you can the story begins, and then you're given a choice between mm-hmm. one character and another. You can pick a point of view. Mm-hmm. So the app version is a very subjective telling of the same story. In other words, you're, you're, you're choosing which perspective through which to view it. So that's the app version. There's a linear version or broadcast version that is going to be on HBO actually tonight. Starting mm-hmm. tonight, it's on for five nights. So starting, I don't know when this mm-hmm. airs, but... It's going to air next week. It okay, is. so it yeah. will have been on last week. Okay. Yeah. But it'll still Catch be on and up. you can get it. It's five. It's five, It's six episodes five, aired five nights in a row uh-huh. last week. Um, and it uh, that is... A, a more traditional telling, meaning um, it's Stephen's cut and it's the same event, but mm-hmm. told in a very different way. So there's literally there are literally two different ways to view it: subjective on an app, for lack of a better word, objective. Sit back on your couch and let HBO. It, it any for preferences you. to which you should watch first, TV and then the app? Oh, good question. I I, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I've you. gotten that a lot, actually. Yeah. That question. So. I'm, I'm, my experiences with people who have saw, seen the app first because the app came out already. Right. And then watch the, the show. And um, so I'm used to that. But I think, first of all, it's either or first, meaning don't start one and go to the other and then mm. go back because okay. they're structured entirely differently. Yeah. So they're not meant to be cross connected in that way. I think if you were having trouble figuring out which to go to do. Yes. 
watch the broadcast version because the app is all about making choices. And so if you're having a choice about which to watch, you'll probably be more anxious about, I oh, should go that way or that way. Yes. So, um, and anyway, the, the, the broadcast version is now out. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that for me, it's newer. So yeah, watch that. You all know? right. Okay, I'll do it. Well, unfortunately, because I know we're all on a tight schedule here. Yeah. I'm so I, I don't, oh. and I want to. We're gonna we're gonna wrap wrap up. But we promise. My last question: Will you come back? I'd love to come back. Continue to talk because I want to yes. talk about Invisible Man and the, I love that. That's a great film. The original, you know. So special effects involved in remaking it. That ought to be really interesting too. So come, please come back. I would okay. love to come back. Already, thank you, Ed. Thanks sure so thing. much. So look for Ed's show Mosaic on HBO and on the app. You can find him on Twitter right. at. Ed underscore Solomon, and his website is edsolomonofficial.com. Thank you, Ed. And you can find Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, on Amazon and in bookstores. That's right. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. The website for the show is ilianaspodcast.com. That's right. And as we end the show, I like to say everyone's life is like a movie. Yours is bananas. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's life is like a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this is the end of our podcast. But you are going to come back for part two because it's been way too much fun. Thank you so much, Ed. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Uh, I know that I'm from producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.